Who's afraid of Donald Trump? Apparently, no one in the Republican Party. This is the Balance of Power Roundtable broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Matt Robeson, with our usual panel of former two-term Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston. We should start off with the action over the weekend, sort of a flip-flopping around in the Republican field, where first it was announced that Donald Trump is going to be subject to a special counsel investigation that caused a Mar-a-Lago kind of reaction from Republicans rushing to his defense. And then there was a little bit of clawing back at the Republican Jewish Coalition's annual confab, where the candidates were coming out of the woodwork to declare Donald Trump Cute story. Great job as president. Let's move forward into a future without you. Capped by Paul Ryan basically saying those exact words. Alicia Preston, is anyone afraid of Donald Trump in the Republican field? Not anyone that matters. I mean, I think what happened in Tuesday's elections, uh, last Tuesday's elections, is that people realize the, the MAGA mantra isn't working for middle America. And the Trump candidates in all swing states lost. Every one of them in a swing state lost because middle America, the people in these states rejected extremism, rejected lies, rejected hate. And what it said to a lot of Republicans when they woke up Wednesday morning is, wait, we don't need Trump. He just got rejected. And they felt free to unleash their honest opinions of him and of the field. And it opened them up. I mean, I can speak for myself. I've been critical of Trump, but I certainly held back. And I've opened myself wide up because I realized the backlash isn't going to be what it was two years ago. You don't have to be afraid anymore because most people are on our side that it is time to move on from Donald Trump and the MAGA movement. But Paul, is it possible that in 2024, we're going to see a replay of what we saw in 2016, which is so many Trump alternatives entering the Republican field that they all kind of crowd each other out. And Donald Trump, with his core 30 or 35 percent base, manages to once again win the nomination. You know, your question assumes a fact uh, which may not exist in 2024, which is that Donald Trump will still be walking around without indictments hanging over his head or without a, a successful prosecution. Um, you know, if, let's just go back for a moment. The special counsel uh, who is now uh, the Republicans are trying to eviscerate um, is an experienced prosecutor who has shown um, that he can be an independent uh, per- prosecutor. He is um, a not a Democrat or Republican. He is an independent. Um, he has experience in prosecuting uh, political figures. Um, so he's a, a pretty good choice. I think it was actually a smart move on Merrick Garland's part. Some fear that this will slow things down, but that's unlikely because whether or not it slows things down a little bit, at the same time, the Manhattan DA is now reinvigorated his Stormy Daniels hush money um, investigation into Donald Trump. That's the latest news as of this morning. Lindsey Graham is going before a Georgia grand jury to talk about the um, the conspiracy to stage a coup and steal the election. So your question about whether or not the field will be split, leaving Donald Trump as the last man 
uh, or last Cheeto standing is 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 you know it's a good question, but it's not necessarily the right question. Uh, the question I think is so if 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 Trump fades because he's indicted because he's in jail for whatever reason, um, will there be a Republican field? You you know it. Um, you know I'm I'm thinking Joe Biden versus uh, versus Bobert. Joe Biden versus Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I think there are there are interesting matchups here. I think that this is going to be very different than the last time around. Trump does not have, even if he's not in jail, even if he's not indicted, he does not have the sway um, that he had. He may have some with his base, but but I don't think, I mean, who's afraid of Donald Trump? I, I don't, th I think people are less and less afraid of him. I, I, I think there, there, there could be a very, very active primary here that, that he does not survive. Well, I think you're right, Paul, to point out the, the potentially flawed assumptions in, in the setup there. I do think, Alicia, that you're right, though, that the wake up moment for Republicans, I, I don't mean like they, they awoken to this, like, They've known this for a while, but it was very interesting that you saw Republican candidates, not just that the MAGA ones lost, but that it was possible to be successful as an explicitly non-MAGA and even kind of Trump-hesitant, Trump-opposing kind of candidate. Look at Brian Kemp in Georgia. And what we saw is a few instances of successful Republican gubernatorial candidates who were able to shed the stink of Trump on the state level, even while their Republican counterparts didn't fare as well. Kemp in Georgia versus Herschel Walker. And then, of course, Nevada, um, Sisolak, uh, becoming the, the, the governor of Nevada, while Catherine Cortez Masto won on the Democratic side for the U.S. Senate seat. And that all kind of goes to two small items that appeared in, in recent days. One is a piece from Ron Brownstein on CNN pointing out that the 2024 map may be shrinking. And in fact, the number of battleground states may be down to just four. And so we're, we're seeing a, a smaller battlefield ahead, potentially, and also a smaller number of voters within that battlefield as a Politico analysis showed that the number of split ticket voters. By definition, these are swing voters, right? Because they could be gettable. And in fact, they did vote for a candidate of either party on the same ballot. The number of split ticket voters in this recently concluded midterm was at its lowest level of any midterm since at least 1990. And so we're just seeing a, a rapidly shrinking um, area that we're, that we're going to be focusing on between the two parties. And it's pretty clear that Trump is toxic with that segment. Republicans, I think, are now pretty clear. Paul Ryan said it on the Sunday shows that if they have Trump at the top of their ticket, they're probably going to lose that small sliver of the electorate that's going to decide the next election. But again, Paul, I think the flaw, if you're going to point out a flawed assumption on my part, I think that the, the assumption on your part is if Donald Trump is subject to an indictment, if he is subject to further investigations, does that actually hurt him? Because every time we've seen one of these things thrown at him, it's drawn Republicans more closely to him. They rush into his defense. It seems to only strengthen him 
within the party. Anything else on this or should we move on? Well, I just want to say that analysis, I, I think, is slightly flawed from the people you referenced. And here's why. I don't think you can look at this election in 2022 and say those swing voters rejected Republicans. They didn't. They rejected Trumpism. They hold oh, no, I'm agreeing Trumpism. with you. I'm agreeing with you. I think they're agreeing with you, too. So if on the next ballot, we don't have Trump and the Trump candidates have finally realized that they're not wanted and they go bye bye in these swing states. I think that swing voter will open up to crisscross the ballot again. I, I think Trump will not be president again. I mean, I, I said he wasn't going to run again, so I was wrong then. Don't take my predictions. But if if you look now, you know, DeSantis is leading Trump in the early states in New Hampshire, in Iowa. All the polls show in those two states that DeSantis is leading Trump. Trumpism is slowing. I think it'll only slow more. I think these further investigations, while they may rile up his extreme base um, to say it's political and everything else, it's going to continue to have those swing voters go, I'm just tired of it. And by the way, I think the DOJ took way too long to appoint a special counsel. I think they should have tried to avoid what looks political. I don't believe it's political and I'm for a special counsel, but the timing was crap. And it was like they fed into the MAGAs. Well, with the, I, the one place I'll disagree on that is better after the midterm. You don't want to announce that before the midterm because then it looks super duper political, but I see your point. Um, Paul, you you wanted to focus a little bit on the potential. Is Samuel Alito a leaker? As a matter of fact, the supreme leaker. Uh, what's what's the story here? The supreme leaker of the United States, Samuel Alito. So so there's this emerging story and uh, potential investigation. Uh, it turns out that back in 2014, the Hobby Lobby decision was leaked. And it further turns out that this past summer, a fellow named Schenck, who was an anti-abortion advocate and has now become a pro-choice activist, sent a letter to Justice Roberts reporting that he had been told by a couple who had dinner with Alito, the, the, the confidential details of the Hobby Lobby decision, that it was going to favor Christian evangelicals and, and other details. And uh, so he wrote this letter, letter to Roberts, and um, it seems to be both viable. Now, Alito had said, uh, you know, uh, that- But that how is that tied to Alito? Well, because these people had dinner with Sam and his wife, Sam Alito and his wife, and they then talked to Shank, who at the time was an evangelical anti-abortion activist. They reported what they had been told by Alito. Shank then wrote this letter this past summer, some quite a few years after the incident, but he wrote it to Roberts. And it just so happens, of course, that the that the huge, huge uh, issue around the Dobbs decision uh, was an Alito decision, and uh, Alito is on record as saying saying grave grave things about those who leak, but it looks like he may be the leaker. And uh, to top this one off, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, a good friend and a smart guy, as well as my former colleague Hank Johnson in the House, have written a joint letter to Robert saying, if the court doesn't investigate this, we're going to investigate. Um, when was the last time anybody heard of 
a joint House Senate investigation into the Supreme Court of the United States. And even barring any further anything about this, where is the Supreme Court now in the um, opinion, estimation, validity, credibility of the people of the United States? And has the court been been extraordinarily diminished in the eyes of the public because of their, well, because, you know, I mean, we've got the perjury of uh, alleged perjury of justices who swore they weren't going to overturn Roe v. Wade precedent. And then, of course, that was the first thing they did. Um, And now we have this history of leaks from the Supreme Court, which violates one of the basic tenets of the confidentiality of the opinions. Oh, 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 if only justices like David Souter were still were still with us on the Supreme Court. So what, Alicia, what do you make of the significance of this? I mean, obviously we are dealing in, you know, I mean, that was a pretty convoluted, not Paul's fault. That's just the reporting on it. And I think you were giving the, but I, I mean, that's admittedly a pretty convoluted chain of reasoning that goes from so-and-so had a dinner who then told someone to, it's like a high school story. And then we're kind of making a leap from there. Like, isn't it interesting that there was then a leak around the Dobbs decision and it was Alito's decision. So there's a lot of, there's a long chain going on here, but what do you see as the significance of this leak story? Does it, is it something we should be concerned about? No. I mean, look, a guy who's a former conservative activist writes the chief justice of the Supreme Court eight years after he allegedly was told by not Alito, by people who had dinner with Alito that then knew about the Hobbs decision that allegedly told him about it eight years ago. And he comes out and says, this is what happened eight years ago. And Alito denies it. Alito says that's not true. It didn't happen. Um, I mean, they can investigate. I think the court, here's the problem. The court needs to adopt a code of ethics. There is, you know, I don't know what White House is being political about because there's nothing you can do. If Alito's like, yeah, I leaked it, bro. There's no reason that there's nothing that says he can't. So what are you investigating, dude? Um, I think the Supreme Court might need to adopt an actual code of ethics that can have some enforcement mechanism. Um, But right now it's like it's being made so political by White House because, you know, he's a Democrat. They don't like the conservative justices. Investigate all you want. I don't care. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. Therefore, it's a non-story. I think (laughs) I think you put your finger on this is part of a much bigger problem. And, you know, what's interesting is it came up around the story about Ginny Thomas and how involved she was in the run up to the insurrection and then the post insurrection and the big lie. I mean, her fingerprints are all over that effort. She's all over Mark Meadows texts. She's all over the list serve that she maintains of former Clarence Thomas clerks who now occupy the upper firmament of the conservative judicial uh, architecture of this country. All these former Thomas clerks, she's emailing them constantly and she's telling them, hey, you know, big lie, got to look into the election. And what all of that obscures is the fact that her history of insane, hard right wing activism goes back a long ways. She has earned money in a consulting capacity for advocacy about cases pending before the Supreme Court. There is money going into the Thomas household that she earns around advocating for cases that her husband is hearing. 
That is wrong. I don't care how much she claims, oh, we never talk about this stuff at home. Okay, fine. That is still a conflict of interest. And the ties are so deep and so tangled. It would take a very, very long time on the show to unearth all of them. I'm not trying to sound overtly partisan about this, that this is only a conservative problem. I'm just saying that we've only heard about these kinds of problems with a few particular kinds of justices. And Alicia, you're right. There needs to be not only a code of ethics, but some teeth behind it. There needs to be a way to clamp down on this kind of crap coming out of the top court in the country. You know, I don't understand is actually beyond the fact that these are like big, important people and the world watches them and all that. This is the I keep bringing seeing this analogy in my head that I don't understand about Clarence Thomas's wife or any of these spouses that do these things. Um, you know, my husband's a soccer ref. He was refing a Winnicott Exeter game a couple of years back. I'm a Winnicott High School graduate. Uh, I played soccer when I was younger. Exeter is like the rivals. We're talking Red Sox versus Yankees. My husband's refing the game. I said, I want to go to the game. He said to me, do not open your mouth. Do not cheer for anybody. If you want to see this game, you have to stay quiet because it could jeopardize my job. It looks like I might have a bias. So you can't say anything if you want to come to the game. So I sat on my hands and I duct taped my mouth and watched my team lose. But my point is, why do people do things that can interfere with their spouse's jobs? And we're talking really important stuff like Supreme Court justices. I think that's personal ethics. And I don't understand why people do that. And I, I know it seems like a weird analogy, but it's actually just what I think of. <laughs> No, that's that's a beautiful illustration of the point. And it, it, it I mean, look, there's a whole bunch of this stuff like, you know, again, I'm just going to pick on the conservatives because they're the ones engaging mostly in this behavior. But, you know, a lot of these folks, as soon as the Supreme Court term ends, they go to like the CPAC conference. They go to these like crazy right wing th and they and they talk up what sounds like political positions on their, they're constantly working their base. They're behaving like politicians. Their spouses are behaving like corrupt lobbyists, which in Ginny Thomas's case, they are. This isn't my work. This is Jane Mayer in The New Yorker who looked at this exhaustively and documented many of these ties. And of course, our former guest, Paul, that you just alluded to, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, has also looked into this dark money judicial network run by Leonard Leo. And Ginny Thomas, is deeply embedded in it. She earns money from it. The entire machinery on the hard right of this country that has been set up, the Federalist Society, to get these crazy right-wing justices onto this, onto the courts and onto the Supreme Court, Ginny Thomas is, she's in the middle of the engine room. She's involved. She's, she's doing all this stuff. And her husband is on the Supreme Court. This would be like Alicia if you went to that soccer game and you were wearing your, what is it, win a, win a concert? Win a con it. Win a con it. You're, you're wearing your win a con it jersey and you gave your husband a win a con it jersey. <laughs> and, you know, you're out there and you're like, you're like Jeff Galuli with a hammer hitting the kneecaps of the Exeter players. Like, that's what Ginny Thomas is doing. And so, I, you know, I would say Alito being a potential leaker probably falls under that rubric. I, Paul, I mean... You know, I, I I guess there would be more to bring to this story eventually. We'll we'll learn more as we go. But do you agree? We have to take a break on WKXL. Do you agree that that's the larger issue here is like the Supreme Court runs wild? The Supreme Court needs a code of ethics and it needs some way to enforce it. End of story. End 
of story. Supreme Court runs wild makes me think of John Roberts lifting his robe and flashing America. I was going to say. There's been kind of this interesting subterranean set of stories, usually not page one, somewhere back in the newspaper, somewhere buried in the newscast, where pundits and analysts have started to speculate about what are the odds that Joe Biden is going to get impeached? And you're seeing all of these comments coming from the incoming chair people. They're all chair men because like this is the Republican Party we're talking about. They're all white men. Um, Income is statements from these incoming chairmen in the House about how they're going to go after Hunter Biden and they're going to try to find some stuff and then they're going to impeach Joe Biden. Um, Alicia, let's start with you. Is Joe Biden going to be impeached? Yes or no? Is this happening? No, no. They, they they might try, but even Republicans in the in the House, they don't need many of them are are, are going to vote against it. it. It's ridiculous. Look to my fellow Republicans out there, you lost because you focused on nonsense. And I know you got control of the House, but you were supposed to have a big wave. You didn't have it. You don't have the Senate. I mean, it it's dumbfounding to me that they look at the election and go, oh, this is the stuff they want us working on. No, no, no. We we told you no. We said this is not what we want you working on. We want you working on things to make our lives better. I want my turkey price down for Thanksgiving. You can't do it for this year. Do it for next year. That's what I would like, Republicans. And we're all looking at you going, are you deaf? Did you not hear us? Because we told you. We gave you a roadmap to success. And you said, nah. Let's go back to some conspiracy theories and let's impeach a president who isn't even accused of a crime. You just are like, his son did something shady. Of course, his son did something shady. Donald Trump, look at your kids. I mean, give me a break. It's just and it's not going to happen. There'll be enough Republicans in the House that are just like, dude, move on. You know, if if you've ever heard the expression, sometimes you got to be cruel to be kind. Alicia Preston, this is why this is why listeners of both parties should love Alicia Preston because the Democrats just went, yes. And the Republicans just went, no, I don't want to hear that. But sometimes you've got to be cruel to be kind. Listen, listen, my fellow Americans, listen. Uh, Paul Hodes, same question to you. Is Donald Trump, despite Alicia's impassioned plea a moment ago, is 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 Joe Biden going to be impeached? Uh, probably not. But, you know, I mean, we're dealing with with a new kind of fairy tale here. This is the Matt Gates. Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican Party. We've moved past Trump. It's now Matt Gates and uh, Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene who are in charge. So they're they're holding the keys to the to uh, to Kevin McCarthy's kingdom in the House. And I don't put past. I don't put past. I don't. I don't nothing. There's there, there's nothing too wacky, too outlandish, too crazy. Too fairy tale uh, to expect from this Republican House. Nothing. So they'll spend their time investigating Hunter Biden. Yeah, they'll try to impeach uh, Joe Biden. They won't get the votes to do that by some slim, slim majority of people who are 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 sane in the Republican Party. But it's going to be a real um, it's going to be an interesting ride for the next two years to the presidential election with the House controlled by essentially the MAGA wing of the party um, trying to out Trump Trump. Um, So good. Great news. Great news. They'll be blocked by the Senate. They'll be blocked by Biden. But. What so whatever they do is not going to have any effect, but it's going to be like 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 Saturday Night Live uh, for the next two years in the U.S. House. You know who's 
the, the only reason that I wanted to bring this up is as a parting gift to Nancy Pelosi, who, Paul, I know you you really adore. Um, since she announced that she's going to step down as Democrats' leader in the upcoming session of Congress, because no one is going to laugh about this situation in a in a rueful way more than Nancy Pelosi, because this is just a rerun of her nightmare from 2017, where there was a faction of the Democratic caucus. I mean, look, Rashida Tlaib came in and said when she was elected, we're going to impeach the fill in the blank MFR. And um, that was that was crazy. That was terrible to say. And Nancy Pelosi spent a lot of her 2017 trying to head off the people in her party that were hell bent on impeaching Trump, whether or not they had the evidence to do it. And lo and behold, the call came to light with Zelensky and we had the whole Ukraine kerfuffle and she could no longer hold back the train we talked about this with the authors of Unchecked about the uh, the, tr- the two Trumps impe- impeachments on this show. You know, th- there was a coordinated effort from your former colleagues, Paul, from Adam Schiff and from Jerry Nadler to kind of corner Pelosi into impeaching. And ultimately, when those national security freshmen to go way ba- back to like four years ago, when they wrote a letter, when they found out about the Ukraine call and they wrote a letter and said, this has gone over the line, it's time, we need to impeach him now, she was boxed in and she had to go ahead with it. And, you know, Alicia, I think everything you just said was beautiful and spot on. Paul, I think everything you just said makes a lot of sense. I think it's happening because, I mean, I, I don't see how the dynamic is really different than what Nancy Pelosi just lived through. Kevin McCarthy is going to have this faction on the right, that's hell-bent on impeaching Joe Biden, no matter what, he's going to have his two chairmen who are undertaking investigations. They're going to find stuff. Inevitably, they're going to find some stuff, something that looks shady about what Hunter Biden is doing. And they're going to say, we found the smoking gun. And Fox News is going to say, we found the smoking gun. And the pressure is going to be on. And at some point, despite the fact that there are nine Republicans in this incoming session of Congress who occupy districts that Joe Biden won in 2020. And the very last thing they want to do is get wrapped up in an impeachment. The pressure is going to be on and Kevin McCarthy is going to have the world's biggest headache. And Nancy Pelosi is going to be laughing at how excruciating this is for him. I ultimately don't see how he holds back that tide. And the position that those nine Republicans are going to be in is they're going to have their base screaming at them to impeach Biden, screaming at them. And they're going to have to hold back that tide in the face of Fox News and Donald Trump tweeting at them or whatever it is after Twitter dies. And it's going to be too hard to hold back the tide. They're going to buckle. It's going to happen. Why am I wrong? Tell me I'm wrong. I don't think you are. I think you're right. It's going to happen. Um, and I mean, I know that Alicia, being a Republican of conscience, hopes it doesn't happen because she knows what the effect of all this crazy caca will be between now and 2024. It will just hold up like a beautiful diamond, the real insanity of the Republican Party to the American public. And that can't be good. Uh, for 2024, for Republicans. All right, Alicia, am I wrong? 
I just don't think, I mean, they may file articles of impeachment. I'd be curious to see what on earth they're going to say, but I just don't see this house with the margin as high as it is and some sane ones that are still in there voting to actually impeach the president, unless, unless there is something none of us know about that actually was done. I just don't turn, you know, It's going to turn out case. that it's going to turn out that Joe Biden bought the laptop for his son, Hunter, <laughs> and as a as a Christmas present and gave it to him. Hunter, here it is. I want you to go out and abuse this laptop for nefarious family purposes. <laughs> That's that's what it is. Right. He um he's responsible for the tools of the that's right. I don't know, crime. I'm, that's I'm right. like I'm, it's a conspiracy of the high crimes and misdemeanors, which is using a laptop while being democratic. What is the crime they're accusing? I, sincerely, do we know? I have no idea. It's a it's a fishing expert. I mean, what they're trying to imply, I don't even want to give this life by by I think what they're trying to imply is that Hunter Biden's business dealings were corrupt because he shouldn't have been on the board of Barisma because he, you know, he was trading on his name and he was trying to do deals overseas. I mean, what it kind of comes down to is the smoke that Fox News was trying to pump into the air around the first Trump impeachment, because what Trump did was very, very wrong and a huge abuse of power. His whole like mafioso, I need you to do a favor for me kind of routine with Zelensky. Sorry, now I'm the one doing voices. You know, I mean, that is that is the quintessential abuse of power. I want you to help me take down my political rival by launching an investigation of him so I can throw dirt at him. That is, but what but what was underlying that was what Republicans were trying to concoct was as vice president, Biden try, you know, advocating for Ukraine to take a certain position when it came to fighting corruption. And it was something that all of Europe was doing, you know, like we, this was, this was a coordinated out in the open attempt to, to, you know, go after anyway, it's like, there was nothing shady or underhanded about it. And so I don't know, there's some implication that like Hunter Biden was doing a dirty business deal with someone who was bad and that, you know, he was hoping to get some money and the deal never happened. I don't know. I'm you you see how you see how there's nothing there, but it doesn't take anything. I mean, do you remember do you remember it back during the Iraq war when like they were desperately searching for weapons of mass destruction to make it so that George W. Bush hadn't just committed a, an egregious lie to the American people. And they're like, hey, um, we found a Winnebago in the desert. Oh, it's a mobile weapons of mass destruction trailer. We found the weapons of mass destruction. That's what's going to happen on Fox News. I mean, they'll find out that that Hunter Biden looked cross-eyed once um, while crossing the street somewhere in downtown Kiev. And it'll be like, See, see, I, that, that's I it. mean, what I keep struggling with is, you know, basically people are complaining about nepotism. Nepotism is alive and well, as it always has been. I'm quite sure that Chelsea Clinton didn't deserve what was it, $600,000 job at NBC the day she graduated college. She and did she not. only got, you know, she, she did not just deserve that job, but she got it because of who daddy was. Um, You know, one of the Bush daughters got a talk show. One, you, you can go back, the children of presidents, they get a little boost in life because their dad, was the leader of the free world. They get things the rest of we schmucks don't get. It happens. That includes money. And is it right? No. Is it new? No. Will it ever change? No. I mean, Donald Trump 
Jr., I think, or is it Eric? One of the Trump kids, you know, just cut a deal with Saudi Arabia for a jillion Oh, it's Eric. It's, it's Eric. Eric. It's Eric. He, you know, I mean, this is what happens to children of leaders of the free world. And is it right? No, maybe not. Is well, I, I don't know. But if nepotism is our claim here, well, then we all got to look in the mirror. Well, I mean, it is going to be pretty rich, but all, voters don't seem to care a lot about hypocrisy. But yeah, the Eric Trump deal. So when Donald Trump went back to his office at Trump Tower last week in New York, he was joined by Eric and the top executive of a Saudi Arabian real estate company to sign a deal. And by the way, it's backed by the government of Oman, backed by the government of Oman. Um, You know, they're 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 nice. They they seem fine. Um, Very nice people on both sides. Oh, yeah. And they're going to build a Trump branded hotel and villas and a golf course. It's a four billion dollar deal. This is on top of the investment from the Saudi sovereign wealth fund of a mere two billion dollars in Jared Kushner's enterprises. And, you know, this is this is life. The money is coming from a foreign and not particularly friendly government teamed up with Saudi Arabia with all the baggage there. And the money is flowing to Donald Trump. This is while he's a former president and while he's a current candidate for president. And all of this is is going on. And uh, Alicia, they're, I don't know, like, what did Hunter Biden do? I don't know. So, yeah, it it, it, it seems delightful. Um, All right. A- anything else on this? I mean, this is, let, let's move to an even sadder story that has like just a little, a little piece of, of sort of. I don't know, humanity in it that, that I found um, inspiring. Uh, obviously, we had this absolutely horrifying shooting in Colorado Springs this past weekend at a, at a place called Club Q. Um, and, you know, in the midst of this absolutely devastating tragedy, uh, once again, and, and uh, Paul, what was it that Lauren Boebert said about it? Prayers? S- sending thoughts and prayers. Thanks, Lauren. Because um, it happened in her district, by the way. Yeah, thoughts and when prayers. She's been, when she's been the, one of the chief architects of the anti-LGBTQ plus um, um, movement or popular or community. I mean, it's she. It. 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 Uh, anyway, it. 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 It defies the word hypocrisy and and disgusting. Yes, and and she she used to serve armed at the the restaurant she operated the first amendment cafe i mean anyway she can stuff it um but you know there was like i said there 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 was a little piece of the story that that gave me a little bit of hope for humanity a man named richard fierro uh was was seated there and he spent 15 years as an army officer he he retired as a major in 2013 and when the tragedy began to unfold, he ran at the gunman. He tackled him. He beat him with the gunman's own own gun. And it's not just the the heroism that grabbed me about this story. It's I, I just I urge people to to look at the New York Times story about about this gentleman because he sort of screams on the surface MAGA. He sort of looks that it. it, it he would look like the kind of person who you would wonder, why are you at a gay club seeing a drag show? And the answer he gives is, and I want to get this right. He was he was there with his daughter, 
and his daughter's boyfriend, and they were seeing one of his daughter's old high school friends perform. And his quote was, these kids want to live this way, want to have a good time, have at it. I'm happy about it because that's what I fought for. So they can do whatever the hell they want. That's a really beautiful sentiment on top of a heroic story. And I just think amidst that tragedy, it's something that people deserve to know about. And and by the way, one of the, one of the really, one of the sad details about this is his daughter's boyfriend died in the shooting. I mean, this, it's, it's unthinkable. You're, you're, you're at a place with beautiful, happy, loving people in a entertainment and all of a sudden there's gunfire. Um, It's, it's, it's just another in the, long line of unthinkable tragedies that this country has suffered and um uh, w- without without a i'm afraid to say a coordinated national response that that can do something to prevent this i, I also heard a report that um colorado where we've seen so many of these shootings has a red flag law um that um, uh, the police have refused to apply. Um, had they applied the red flag law, perhaps this gunman would not have had uh, the weapons. Um, so there's there's a deeply embedded culture, and and which is uh, I think exemplified by Lauren Boebert, that is killing people in this country. I don't disagree with anything you guys said about this horrible tragedy. You know, the one thing that it brings to mind, Matt, in your analysis of you think he was a MAGA guy, but he, you know, was at a drag show is I don't know when drag shows became political, you know, about 45 minutes from my house, there was the, in Massachusetts, there was this place in the city called Saugus and it was a drag club forever. My Republican mom and stepdad um, used to go a couple times a year because it was a great Friday night out. They enjoyed it. They had dinner and a show and it just happened to be a drag show. And they were straight. They were, there was nothing political about it. I've been to drag shows, went on vacation in Cape Cod before in Provincetown. I'm straight. I'm Republican. It never was political. It was strictly entertainment and real talent and fun to watch. And there's this weird thing where now if you're going to a drag show, it would be surprising if you were Republican and straight. And it shouldn't be because these are very talented people doing entertaining things and that's what they're there for. And we make everything political and how drag shows became political. They've been around for a thousand years. It makes no sense to me. Look, there's an interesting posting um, on Facebook that that, that, that sort of summarizes what we're dealing with. It says, gay people aren't shooting up straight nightclubs. Black people aren't shooting up white grocery stores. Latinos are not shooting up Walmarts. Jewish people are not shooting up Christian churches. The violence is coming from one demographic, alt-right radicalized men. So um, MAGA, Trump, Republicans, you've got a problem here. And um, you've got a problem. Uh, Houston, we've got a problem. And uh, that's 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 the um, Trump and MAGA have unleashed um, an escalation of hate and violence. And uh, until the Republicans deal with it, we're going to be suffering as a nation. There is a sickness, a viral sickness afoot in the Republican Party that is killing people. And it's time for it to stop. 
Um, but I haven't heard a single responsible voice from the Republican Party other than Alicia's, um, uh, which is dealing with this. And and I'm not and 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 I I know that that may sound like a partisan comment, but the evidence is simply overwhelming as to the source of the hate and violence that is we're experiencing in this country. But I think that also point, just to bring this full circle and into the politics of it, to why I wanted to bring up the story of this man who tackled the gunman. And I, I know I'm making surface assumptions about him based on his appearance and I have no idea what his politics are. It's, so it's what he said, but but it's it's so what he said. No, 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 no. But, but what he said, but what he said is what matters. Which is, you know what? If it, I don't care if they want to live this way, I'm going to support my daughter and her friend, and that's what I fought for. That's the that's the mm-hmm. point. Is that this is a this is a veteran who has gone. You know, and we all could make all kinds of assumptions. We we know the demographics. We know that people who serve in the army are overwhelmingly Republican. That's, that's just is what it is. But, but the sentiment points back to an earlier breed of conservatism, which is a, a more libertarian brand of, you know what, you do you. Exactly. What I care about is a, a real conservatism of, I care about my family, I care about my community. And if you want to live life that way, that's what this country is about. And so if Paul, I agree with everything you said about where the threat is coming from. I think the hope in all of this is there is still a strain of thought in America that we can all get behind that kind of points a way forward to a a, a liberalism and a conservatism that goes beyond political ideology that's about here's what we stand for as Americans. And it's about, you know, freedom and getting to live the way we want to live. Hey, speaking of which, Let's end the show on a hopeful note. Alicia, you want to spoil World Cup results for all of our listeners and talk <laughs> about the World Cup. Let's do that for two minutes. Um, biggest story in the world, go. Our biggest upset in World Cup history. It's being called uh, just today. Saudi Arabia, who everyone was surprised even got into the World Cup, beat Argentina, third ranked team in the world. Um, and it was a, it was an amazing game to watch. And look, I normally don't cheer for terrorist regimes, but it's not the athletes' fault that they were born in Saudi Arabia. And uh, I love an underdog story. Who doesn't love an underdog story? Argentina is such an arrogant team. Um, they, you know, they they flop, they roll around, they beg for calls. Refs give it to them because they're Argentina. I mean, the ref should have been torn off the field today. He was so trying to give Argentina the win, and the Saudi Arabians were just like a wall in front of that goal, and it wouldn't happen. So this is what the World Cup's about two things to me. I love to watch the USA play and I love to root for them. And I love to see a story no one expected. And we're on day three and we already have some good stuff. Team USA tied Wales in their first game. They shouldn't have. It was a stupid penalty. Um, it was a stupid penalty. It was a stupid penalty that <laughs> and gave we were Wales the tie. Them. Yeah, yeah it, I mean, it, it was just dumb. If there's anything that gives me hope in that result, it's that we really were outplaying. And if we can get any kind of result, against England. I mean, a tie or even, excuse me a moment, even a loss by not that much, we still have a pretty good path forward into the next round because this is probably going to come down to goal differential. It's looking like it's going to be the U.S. and Wales with, with England leading the way out of the group, the U.S. and Wales trying to get there on goal differential. They, they both absolutely have to beat Iran 
in their in their Iran matchup. And it's going to come down to who can lose to England by less or, or maybe tie, maybe eke out a tie and uh, who can beat Iran by more. And if you fall short of either of those things, probably not going to the second round. That would be very disappointing for a U.S. team that is the highest quality I've ever seen. I've been closely following this team for 30 years. So fingers crossed. And on that note, we're all out of time for Paul and Alicia. I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time.